Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Uh, John chapter 1 is where we're going to be. If you need a Bible that you can put in your lap, uh, please feel free. <clears throat> excuse me, please feel free to uh, uh, go grab one off the sides of the tech booth back there. And um, if you uh, are a user of the Bible app, you can follow along with our scriptures and sermon notes and uh, all of that kind of stuff there. Uh, John chapter 1. Now, um, we're going to do a little bit of uh, rehashing from what we did um, last week just to make sure that we are really, really clear on, on how John is going to help us. Uh, and let me just start it this way. Like, it'll be like this. Uh, anybody ever had a moment where um, you have seen something that you would consider utterly life-changing, right? I mean, you just like, I've seen that and it is, it is, I am a different person in light of that. Anybody with me on this? Okay, we celebrated a milestone birthday uh, this past week uh, in our house. Uh, one of the things that definitely changed me, um, when, when that one was born, and the doctor's like, hey, here comes your son, you want to watch? And I'm like, yeah, no, yeah, no. And you had that moment right there, right? It was definitely a life-shaping, kind of changing moment. Um, th- this this um, is the kind of thing that John is after. Why? Because he is going to paint for us. Um, these portraits of Jesus. He is going to show us these pictures of Jesus. And in doing so, as we behold the Jesus that John portrays for us, we will become like him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this is what Paul says. He says, as we uh, behold this God who has put himself on display in his grace, as we behold him, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, meaning we're growing, steadily growing, moving towards the kind of a person that God desires us to be. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the more we understand and the more we see who Jesus is and what he is like, the more we will grow to be like him. That's why John writes, and it's why, uh, we will continue uh, to, to look at these pictures. So today, the theme of the sermon is the Jesus of John. Okay, so the Jesus of John, that like who is it that John puts on display? And I'm going to start back in John chapter 1, actually in verse 1. I'm not sure all of this is going to show up in your, uh, I think it may, but all of it will show up in your uh, Bible app. But anyway, I just want to do that because it's so beautiful. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and this life, that Zoe kind of life, that life, eternal life, that Zoe life, that life was the light of men. And here's where we start. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. That is a place of victory, folks. Like the story that we are a part of is the story of victory. Because darkness exists, yes. Jesus steps right into it, and the darkness is like, I got nothing. I can't, I can't do anything here. The darkness does not overcome it. Uh, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now this is where it gets just a smidge confusing, so everybody turn your brains on for just a moment. The author of the gospel of John is not the John that he's referring to right there. This is John the Baptist, and we'll talk more about him actually next week. So uh, there was a man who was sent from God. His name was John, or who we call John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. May that be true of us. May we always be pointing people to Jesus so they don't believe in us, but they believe in him. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to 
everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But still, was he afraid of rejection? No, he still stepped right into the mission that the father had given him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So these who did believe, are there as an example for us and an encouragement for us um, that um, th- though we may have moments in our lives where we kind of step back or pull back, um, they, they want to encourage us to live as the children of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, meaning not according to your genealogy, nor of the will of the flesh, not through the normal processes, nor of the will of man. It's not imposed by a parent, so to speak, but were born of God. And then this is where we want to sit down in verses 14 through 18. And the word became Flesh. Let's start right there. The word became flesh. One of the pictures that God, excuse me, that John will consistently paint of Jesus is that he is God in the flesh. He does things that God does and nobody else can do. He is God in the flesh. The, the um, fancy word for that is God incarnate. If any of you studied Latin in high school or college, um, then you, you get incarnate God with meat on. That's kind of what it means. He has taken, he has left heaven, the, the um, throne of the universe. He has come to earth. This, when we talk about Christmas, this is what we're talking about. Jesus is God incarnate. He, this, this pure spirit has become human. God is spirit. He's going to say this in John chapter 4. God is spirit. And those who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and truth. That pure spirit has now come as a human. And wh- why I mean, okay, thanks so much for that. Um, This is its own version of a miracle. Why is that important? Because he became human in order to save humanity. There's an old saying that if, if, you, uh, if you don't take it on, then you can't do anything with it. This is, this is that kind of thing. Jesus takes on humanity. He takes on human, if you will, puts on flesh so that he can save um, humanity. In Hebrews chapter 2, ah, come on, fingers. He, Hebrews chapter 2, this is what it says in verse 17. Therefore, he, that's Jesus, therefore, he had to be made like his brother. So he had to be. This, it was necessary for him. This wasn't an optional thing. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. Propitiation, big Bible word, paying for the sins that we owed God and purchasing favor with God for us. Um, verse 18, for he, because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to come to the aid or help those who are being tempted. He had to be made like us. In order to save us, he had to become like us. This is what he's talking about. And this is why it's important that we see Jesus is God incarnate. He is the one who has come. Second thing he says, verse 14, we're going to spend a little bit of time in verse 14, so just lock in, okay? Uh, second thing he says, the word became flesh became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the perfect son of God left heaven and came to live 
on earth. He, he is the one who has uh, moved into our neighborhood, so to speak. He, he has dwelled in our midst. He, he, his zip code was our zip code. This is the story that we're talking about. But it wasn't just that. It was that the perfect son has come to do this. The, the verb that he uses there, um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some of you, your different translations, or maybe you have a note there, pitched his tent or made a tabernacle, a tabernacled among us. And if you've been around church for a while, you think to yourself, I've heard that word before. Tabernacle, tabernacle, tabernacle. Yes, you have. If you haven't, that's okay. I'll try to do the uh, 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 kind of summary flyover here. But God delivers his people out of Egypt, the people of Israel, brings them out of Egypt into the wilderness so that they can learn to trust him and follow him as he commands them. And one of the things that he did is he put together this little representation of, of the Garden of Eden, the perfect place, dead in the middle of their camp, the temple or the tabernacle, excuse me, this tent. And it had all these uh, cool images and, and he was real specific about some things. He's like, put that table there. No, not there. Not there. Not there. No, slide over, slide over, slide over. Put, that, put it there. That's what you do. Hang a curtain right here. Make it out of this. Be sure and use gold. And don't forget the purple. He had all these instructions about it to, um, to, so that it represented all that he wanted to represent. And what was that? That God was in our midst. And here when he says, and he came and he dwelt, he made his tabernacle among us. What we're calling to mind is there is a, a cloud and a fire and perfection living dead in our midst. It wasn't just the, that he moved into our neighborhood. Because some of us, I mean, like some of us have some neighbors that we're like, well, they're less than perfect. Yeah, I mean, right? Right? They got the yippy dog or, you know, their garbage can actually gets put on our side of the driveway or whatever it may be, right? We've got the neighbor that we're like, yes, you're in my life so that I can practice love my neighbor. That's why you're here. That's why you've got the address. No lies told, people. No lies told. That's not him. In John, what we will see is that the perfect Son of God has come to dwell in our midst. This little tabernacle that was in the camp of the Israelites when they were delivered out of Egypt is now represented, if you will, in its fulfillment um, by Jesus coming and dwelling in our midst. He's the perfect Son. Um, He lived in this world as if it was a perfectly sane thing to do. Because he knew that his father was in charge and he could trust his father. Now that right there is its own challenge. The sinless son comes and he dwells among, he makes his tent among, he tabernacles among those who are sinful and those who are suffering. And in doing so, he remains unstained by all of this while still caring. Like he doesn't pull back into a shell. Oh, don't touch me. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. And he doesn't surrender the the kind of clarity that comes with uh, uh, um, living according to the truth. He does both. He he, he doesn't um, back off on compassion and he doesn't yield in clarity. He handles both. The sinless son comes and and he lives among us those who are sinful, those who are broken, those who are suffering. Uh, thirdly, verse 14 again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen. Now, I, don't, I didn't want to skip past that. There was actually a late ad in the sermon stuff. But we have seen. What does that mean? John is testifying to what he saw. Like he put his eyes on this kind of stuff. He's saying, yeah, there's some people around here. Come on, come, come, come here, come here. Everybody with me? Did we see this? Yes, we saw this. I mean, we would, if we were in court today, we'd put our hand on the Bible, raise our right hand, make the, make the, like, this is what we have seen. What does that mean? It means that Christianity is a historical reality. It means that Jesus is a historical figure. Why? Because, again, what's the import of that? Um, there, there will be points along the way in the Gospel of John where, where we see him say, hey, this is happening, this is happening. And then six days later, he's telling that story so that we know this is real-time stuff. This is historical stuff. This is actual stuff. These are the things that happen. Jesus is part of the story that God has told in history of the earth. Why does that matter? Because Christianity, before it's personal, it's historical. You and I are stepping into a story that God has been telling for a long, long time. He started in Genesis with the garden and he's worked his way through. And why is that, why is that critical for you and me to understand? Because when we are invited into this story, when we step into this story, there's a couple of things. Number one, we are a part of something much larger than ourselves. It's not about me and the number of followers I have, the number of likes I get. It's, it's not about me and the people who offer me praise or adulation or anything. It's not about me at all. I'm stepping into a story of something much larger than ourselves. And some of us, deep down inside somewhere, we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Because, man, the, the, the smallness of our world seems like it's going to get us at points. It's just going to take us in. We were invited to something part of their ourselves. And because we're invited to something part of their ourselves, listen, bigger, uh, bigger than ourselves, invited to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Because we're invited to do that, maybe just maybe there's hope that if I get written into that story, if I step into that story, I won't mess it up too much. Maybe just maybe I'm a character here in the play. I, I am a part of the story that God is telling And he's been telling this story for a long time. Maybe there really is a place for me. And what that allows us to do is to anticipate what God, based upon what he has done, we might anticipate what God will do. We we know the kind of God who's telling this story. We know the kind of God who's inviting us into it. We know the kind of God who's purposing his... um, um, uh, his actions and, and the story he's telling so that it works its way out in the way that he wants to. If we, if we know what has happened, we might be able to anticipate how God will act. And, and I just like, let me just a little parentheses here for just a little bit of careful because some of us, we pick up parts of the Bible and we read it and we're like, oh, good, good. Because I got some Philistines that I would really like to slay. You know what I mean? Like there's some people in my life. Yes. We have to put those past acts in their proper contexts. And we look to Jesus to understand how those things are to be understood today. But it does allow us to see that God does do justice in the world. It does allow us to see that God does care about uh, the existence uh, of good and, and uh, that his people do good. It does allow us to see that there are forces of darkness that have been at work, that are at work, and that tomorrow when we wake up, they're still going to be at work. I mean, those are all realities. But we can, based on how he has worked, we can anticipate um, how he might.
And, and furthermore, what that does right there, that frees us from the temptation to judge Christianity uh, on the basis of our experience of it. These are realities in which we're trafficking here. These are truths which we are dealing with here. It's not just our experience of it. These are realities. Okay, verse 14 again. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen, that's those first few things there, we have seen His glory, His glory. Again, um, this is where we ended last week, and so we're going to pick up uh, some steam here, but this is... The glory of God, um, when we think about it, sometimes it's like, you know, fire on the mountaintop or, you know, Jesus split in the eastern sky or whatever it may be. The, the glory, though, in the book of John that he is portraying for us, Jesus himself talks about it. The glory of Jesus is him crucified and risen. In chapter 12, he actually mentioned it a couple of times. Um, uh, within just a few verses of one another. In chapter 12, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Just take a breath here and go, hey, if you don't understand some things at first too, guess what? You're in pretty good company. It's in the Bible right there. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, that is when he was lifted up um, on the cross and then resurrected, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And then down, just verse in, in verse 23, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. What is he talking about there? This is chapter 12. Chapter 13 is when things really start tumbling. Like we're in the last hours of the life of Jesus in the story as John is telling it. And so he's saying this moment has come for Jesus to be glorified. The glory of Jesus is the crucifixion and the resurrection. This is how the story is unfolding. And so when we see Jesus in his glory, we will see him as one who was crucified and risen. That's important. Why? Because there are times when I want a different kind of glory. Jesus says, this is the kind of glory that I'm bringing to the table. His victory over sin and over death um, demonstrates that he is who he says he is. And we talked about this last week. Therefore, he is the only one who can carry this mission redemptively. If you have a very special guy, a very special man, who climbs up on a cross, you can't carry the weight of this mission redemptively. God, God alone can carry the weight of this mission redemptively. He is the only one who can die for our sins and in our place and bring um, redemption as a result of that. Okay, verse 14. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father. There's that uniqueness part. Only he could do it. Full of grace and truth. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Not one or the other, but both. These are not parallel tracks. This is a monorail. And we're just talking about two sides of the same thing here. Grace and truth. Um, We often pit one against the other. And we probably are personally inclined towards one or the other. We'll talk about more about that in just a second. But let me just demonstrate um, from a, a couple of stories here. In John chapter 3, uh, Jesus meets a guy named Nicodemus. He's a religious leader of the day. Uh, he comes to him at night because he's a little terrified of being found out. But he sits down and has an amazing conversation with Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, Hey man, you are counting on things that you shouldn't count on. 
There, you, you are worried about where you are and, and if, if you are and how you are in your flesh, like in your own power. And there has to be a power from outside of you to come down from heaven to you to change you from the inside out that can be described as nothing else other than being born again. You must be born again, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is like, oh man, boy, this just got weird. Are you, are you, no, not that Nicodemus. Like there has to be a power from God to come on the inside and change you. And when that does, listen, it will be something like being born again. Like it will just change you. It's what Preston just mentioned earlier. I did a 180 because of the power of God. This is what we're talking about. Why? Why is this a reality? Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. That whoever, whatever kind of people believe in him, listen, they will have eternal life. Now, here's the question. Did Nicodemus get grace or truth? And the reality is, he got both. He got both. You must be born again. And I'm telling you, God wants to do this because he loves you, Nicodemus. Then the very next chapter, a lady comes out to the well, um, She's a Samaritan woman. Jesus is sitting there. It's like, hey, I'm pretty thirsty. Give me a drink. The lady's like, look, you're a Jew. You shouldn't be talking to me. This is not good. Just, just, just leave me alone. <laughs> well, listen, um, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you'd actually be asking me for a drink, and I would give you living water, and that living water inside of you would well up um, to eternal life, and it would then begin to feed not only your, old, your own soul, nourish your own soul, but also it would flow out in streams of living water to all kind of people around you. And she's like, this is crazy. What kind of talk are we talking here? He said, I tell you what kind of talk we're talking. Tell you what, go get your husband. We'll talk about what we're talking about. That'd be good. She's like, I don't have a husband. (laughs) That's right. You've had five husbands and the guy you're shacked up with now, not your husband. Back it up here. So I perceive you're a prophet. (laughs) On they go. So that here's how the conversation ends. She goes running back to her village, crying out, come see the one who has told me everything I've ever done. He must be the Messiah. Now just picture that. This lady, her past is sorted like, like trashy romance novel bad, right? This is that. And she says, going back to her village, listen, this guy, he read my mail and I'm telling you, he's got to be the Messiah. What kind of transformation comes in that woman's life to make that her testimony? The first missionary right here going to her village to tell her these things. Did this lady, did she get grace or truth? She got grace, right? Because it's living water and all. She got truth. Go call your husband. As I said earlier, we're inclined one way or the other. You just kind of had this bent. And we need both in the church. We need both. Because we don't want to get soft in the places where we need to stand firm. 
And don't, we don't want to be mean in the places we need to be compassionate. We need grace and truth. That's why Jesus came full of both, so that when we live after him, when we follow after him, this becomes a reality for us. Here, here's what I would say to you. You can discern which way you lean by listening to the part you feel the need to emphasize. So, like, you've got to tell the part of the story where, like, go call your husband. You must be born again. Or you've got to tell the story, God so loved the world. Uh, I am here to give you living water. You are bent one way or the other. And the reality is, listen, the reality is, is that we are supposed to live in both. And we need both grace and truth. Jesus came full of both of those things. Uh, verse 15 now. Finally, out of verse 14, verse 15. John, again, that's John the Baptist, okay? So I'm just going to say it as John the Baptist. John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. We will continually see pictures that Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our allegiance. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our affection. He is worthy of all of it. We will consistently see pictures um, in the gospel of John that he is worthy. John bore witness about him, cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. People would think John's the first one to come and announce the kingdom of God. Therefore, he should be like the one most celebrated. But John's like, no, 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 no. The one who's coming after me, the one I'm pointing to, he is actually the one that you need to pay the most attention to. Why? Because he was actually before me. Like he was on the scene and doing the thing and he's a part of all of this before me. He is worthy. What does this mean? It is based on his personhood, not my opinion of him. I want us to say as a people, Jesus is worthy of my worship and allegiance and affection and, and uh, um, obedience. Um, and it doesn't matter my opinion. Like if I wake up on Monday and I'm not feeling it, he's still worthy. A song out right now, Phil Wickham, in the blessing and the pain, he is still worthy. He's still worthy. Just think about John's life. Like the first few chapters of the story, John the Baptist, man, his ministry is just gangbusters. People coming out like NASCAR crowds to hear him preach. He's all crazy. Um, uh, camel hair coat and he's eating locusts and honey. And he's just breathing fire wherever he goes, man. People just <laughs> looks at the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day like, tell you what, you know what you're like? You're like a brood of vipers, like a den of snakes, like a, just this little ball of cobras. That's what you are. I mean, this is how he talked. In that moment, he was worthy of John's, John the Baptist's allegiance. Jesus was worthy in the, in the high points of John's life. And then, because he was that guy, he got arrested, sent to prison. He even went so, John the Baptist even went so far as to send some emissaries to Jesus and go, look, the boss needs to know. He, he's certain that he bet on the right horse. Like he, He's sure that he did, but he just really wants to make sure because he sees the end coming. He wants to know, like, you are the Christ, right? Like, we shouldn't be looking for another, right? Jesus is like, oh, John, I can't believe you would doubt at this point. I can't. No, 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 no. That's not what he said. You know what he said? Just go tell John what you see in here. Just go tell him. The good news have poor preached to them. The sick get healed. The deaf hear. The blind see. Go tell him that. He'll know. He'll know. 
So for you, at the high point of your life, whatever it may be, and if it's that right now, like if it's mountaintops and blue skies and everything's awesome, he's worthy of your praise. And if you're down here in somebody else's dungeon and the, the doubts and questions are starting to creep in, it's really hard right now. Darkness seems to be the thing that is most surrounding you. I want you to know in that moment, he's also worthy of your praise. Why? Because his worthiness is not dependent upon your opinion of the moment. His worthiness comes out of his personhood. He is before me because he was before me. On this, just note, in the end, I will willingly surrender to him or I will finally submit to him. My knee will bow one way or the other. Willingly is much better because it's at that point that I experience the kind of life that he has. He is worthy. Okay, verse 16. For from, that's uh, from Jesus, from his fullness, we have all received a grace upon grace or grace after grace or something like that. It's kind of a funky uh, word there to translate. Um, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the Jesus of John will consistently portray that he is the giver of grace. Over and over and over again, we will see him give grace. He's not just full of grace and truth. He is the sharer of that. He is the one who gives grace. And so a couple of questions coming out of this. Number one, um, is there a point where I won't need grace? Like, can I get so mature in my Christian faith that I will not need grace? And the answer to that is... Oh, gosh, no. No, no. Can an airplane keep flying if it runs out of fuel? No. Here's what I think is true. That the more mature I get, the more grace I actually need. Because the things that I do, I don't do in my own power. I do in his. Because some of us think grace is just forgiveness. Oh, no, no. Grace is far more than forgiveness. It's power. It's help. Like when we need help, good news, God has grace. And not just a little bit of grace. What does he have? Of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. Like upon grace and upon grace. Just picture yourself sitting at the seaside. Picture wherever your favorite spot is. Um... And you're there and you get, you just kind of planted yourself in the sand here and the tide's coming in, the waves are starting to wash up on you and you get that first one, you're like, oh, this is pleasant. That's grace. And then, oh, wait, 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 like, like here comes another one. And then there's grace. And, oh, okay, here's another, it's grace and it's grace and it's grace and it's grace and it's grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. God, in his storehouse and in infinite resources, does not run out of grace for you and for me. We get grace upon grace. Now, there's some teenagers in the room. I just want to say to you, that is a much better life. Grace upon grace is a much better life than some of the other things that are posing as life or offered as life. For those of you at like career stage, Grace upon grace is better than some of the things that you might be asked to do to advance your career. 
And for those of you with silver hair and you're kind of staring, you've rounded the corner here and you're kind of thinking about the finish line, I want you to know there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace for you. The waves don't stop. They just keep coming because God is just that good. He is the giver of grace. One of the questions that gets asked, I get asked this as a pastor sometimes, I'll just go ahead and address it. Then why don't I just keep sinning? Like if God is so good at the grace part, maybe I could be good at the sinning part and that way we could balance the thing out. Here's what I want to tell you. If that's your thought, um, what that shows is that you simply do not understand the grace that you're sitting in. Like, or you may not be sitting in it at all. Like you, you may be, I don't know where you may be, but it's, it's not grace. Why? Because the grace of God shapes us. Just like sitting um, on the seashore right there with the waves washing up, you will ultimately and finally get wet, yes? You will have sand in places, right? Because this is just part of the deal. This is the thing. Titus 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all sorts of people. That's good news because there's all sorts of people in here. And this grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's grace that does that. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace trains us to renounce some things, to put aside some things, and to do some things, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. And furthermore, to wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Grace upon grace upon grace changes us. It makes us do the things that he wants us to do. It makes us desire the things that he desires for us. Grace upon grace upon grace. If we ask the question, why wouldn't I just keep sinning and depend on his forgiveness? We show that we have not understood what grace actually is or experienced it. Last thing, God is our revealer. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. He says, the only God who is at the father's side, that's Jesus. He's talking about, he has made him known. He has made him known. God is the, the Jesus of John. He will consistently say, listen, I'm showing you about who God really is the God of the universe. And here's what's first and foremost in that. The God of the universe wants to be known by us. He is not hiding. Some people think he is. No, no, he's not. He is not um, withdrawn because uh, you think, oh man, I just if I come to him, he'll be like, ooh, and the shame you feel with that. He's not. He is not withdrawing. Some of you think that God is angry. He is not angry with you. He wants to be known by you. He wants to be known. He dealt with sin. He just, at the cross of Christ, he's not angry with you. Um, some of you think that he's somehow distracted, kind of parenting you from the other room. What'd you say? I'm kind of busy. Dude, can't you see I'm doing something? That's not God. It's not. He wants to be known. So much so that he locates his greatest delight 
in relationship with you. In John 17, verse 3, he says this, this is eternal life. Like he is setting us up to live with him forever, starting today. Like the eternal kind of life can start today for you and for me. And it will be, it will move us forward into eternity and it will be indestructible even by death. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, not perform for you, not do the dance for you, not try to um, get God off their back, not try to accomplish certain things that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is what he is inviting you into. He is not, he is not withdrawn. He is not distracted. He wants to be known by you. And he sets it up so that eternal life is a relationship with you um, and it, li- it lasts into eternity. This is the Jesus that John consistently shows us. Let me pray for us. We'll have a moment to respond and then we'll close with a couple of announcements. Uh, Father, wherever these things have landed, um, I I pray that they would, uh, because we have some needs here, like we've got some things that we just need. And so, Father, out of your grace, and there is grace upon grace upon grace for us, out of your grace, would you please um, meet us, speak to us, lodge these things right where they need to stick. Boy, it was a lot today. There's a lot of material. But, God, I pray that you would show yourself and give us what we need in this moment. Father, for anyone here, anybody watching online who doesn't know you, I pray today they would put their trust in you. Their lives, like we heard earlier, their lives would be experience the kind of 180 that comes when your life takes up residence in them. This is our prayer. Make it our reality in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.